Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Claire Madeline Culkin. Today, we will be discussing a volume titled Christianity and Psychoanalysis, published in 2014 by InterVarsity Press, with its editors, Drs. Earl Bland and Brad Strawn. Dr. Strawn is a reverend ordained in the Church of the Nazarene, who received his Doctorate of Philosophy in Clinical Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary where he also holds a Master's of Arts degree in theology. Currently, Dr. Strawn serves as a professor there, where he teaches the integration of psychology and theology in clinical applications. Dr. Earl Bland holds a Doctorate of Psychology from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology, as well as certificates in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Currently, he is on the faculty of the Greater Kansas City Psychoanalytic Institute, the Brookhaven Institute for Psychoanalysis and Christian Theology, as well as at the Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University, where, like Strawn, he teaches on integration from a clinical perspective. In Christianity and Psychoanalysis, Drs. Strawn and Bland call for a new conversation between religion and psychoanalysis, which the authors understand, to share a meaningful explanatory space and that both systems are driven toward an understanding of the human condition. They argue that religious beliefs on both sides of the treatment play a role in the meaning-making between clinician and patient and are therefore of theoretical and clinical importance to a psychoanalytic perspective. Please welcome them to the discussion. So Earl and Brad, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for um, coming on. Thanks. Thank you. As you know, I've introduced the listeners a little bit to your um, your professional backgrounds as well as to as well as to the book. Um, one of the things that I find so unique about your approach to your areas of academic inquiry is the radical personal stance um, that you guys take in authoring this text. Um, I was wondering if you would be able to speak a little bit of the personal questions that you had um, that kind of this work came out of. Yeah, this is Earl. Um, sure, Claire. Um, I think I think I'll speak for me, and uh, probably Brad will be able to highlight his own experience. But this this project uh, is a culmination of a lot of different aspects of uh, personal and professional um, trajectories. One is the search to make sense of a fairly significant uh, faith um, uh, development in my own life and also engaging a profession that uh, provides an incredible amount of uh, deep meaning and orientation. So having a conversation between uh, one's faith and one's psychology can take one in lots of different directions. Um, But for me in particular, it took me to uh, more of a depth exploration. So. Um, just as there was a, an attempt to understand the deep meanings of faith, there was an attempt to understand the deep aspects of 
of uh, psychology and psychotherapy and certainly clinical practice. I think psychoanalysis, uh, as we try to highlight in the book, is uh, is a good uh, match for that, that there are um, some synergies, um, not to overuse a word, but uh, that can really bring together uh, one's uh, exploration of the Christian faith and, uh, and clinical practice uh, from a psychoanalytic point. Um, that being said, there's also some other issues around just the formation of a community uh, that really had an impetus towards bringing this book together. Yeah. This is um, Brad. <clears throat> I would say, um, you know, I came to faith first and psychoanalysis second. Uh, <laughs> but for a period of time, I think um, it was uh, difficult to reconcile the two. And um, as we again outline in the book, uh, with changes in philosophy and psychoanalysis and in theology, things begin to move um, intellectually to a place where these two could now have a kind of respectful conversation with one another. And I think even on a more personal note, for me was the issue of how does one integrate one's religious faith with psychology in general? And what I think psychoanalysis helped me understand was that that background, one's religious faith, whether it's, um, whether it's being part of a particular religious denomination or faith tradition, um, is not unlike the impact of one's culture or one's gender, and that I think psychoanalysis helps us understand that we really need to understand and clarify that tradition, not in pathological ways, uh, but in a much more um, understanding way. Uh, how, does, how does our faith tradition, how does our culture, how does our gender really impact the way we are in the world, the way we are with one another? Um, and again, I think I found that psychoanalysis uh, was very, very helpful in doing that. However, what's interesting when it comes to religion, and maybe we'll talk some more about this, is that many people who integrate their faith with psychology have not kind of clearly articulated their faith, what that particular tradition is about. So they may talk about culture or gender, for example, uh, or even sexual orientation impact, but uh, don't talk about faith, which is... Um, you know, if the surveys are right, then upwards of 90% of the people in the Western United States, anyway, will say that they come from some sort of faith tradition. So that's a little bit about how those two things got worked around inside of me. Yeah. Um, so in the introductory chapter, um, I guess speaking speaking to this a little bit, um, you guys say the re- relational turn in theology has matched the relational emphasis found in much of modern psychology and particularly contemporary psychoanalysis. It is questionable, however, whether the literature on the integration of Christianity and psychology has followed this shift to relationality. I think that kind of speaks to one of the more theoretical um, points that you guys are making in this book or are trying to address by compiling this work. Um, But there's also a a way in which there's a more clinical issue, which I think, Brad, you're bringing up now. What interests me in, in coming to both of your work is that I was introduced to this entire world of psychoanalytic inquiry that I was never aware of. You both have backgrounds at universities that have uh, religious orientation. And uh, Brad, I, I know that you are currently working um, in a program that focuses a lot on integration. Is that fair of me to say? Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So I was wondering if you both speaking to your individual experiences what point of relation you guys found, how you guys came together as thinkers who were going to put this work together, 
um, where where that disjuncture existed in environments where ostensibly this conversation was already taking place. Um, I'll go first. Or yeah, go ahead, <laughs> you can fill in all the holes I leave. Um, well, again, for me, what was interesting, I think in, in uh, and, I, and I guess we should be, again, tradition and explicit here. Yeah. Uh, my circle is, is kind of Judeo-Christian uh, you know, evangelicalism, actually. Um, and so in that circle, uh, for many years, psychology itself has been suspect. It's been seen to be antithetical to religion. Thankfully, in the last, you know, 100 years or so, well, maybe more than that. There's been there's always been psychologists from religious faith who have been sort of struggling with integrating the two. So that's been going on for quite some time. Some of those early thinkers were analytic in some sense, but uh, you know, as we outlined in the first chapter, of course, the influence of Freud was not very positive toward religion. Um, so, whereas psychology has been suspect in Christian circles uh, and even Christian academia, I think psychoanalysis even more so. So it was difficult to find. Um, in some ways, a community of people who um, were open to this and wanted to think about it. Um, however, again, historically, there are some people, um, including Harry Guntrip, um, Ian Sudi, um, um, and, and Marie Hoffman in, uh, uh, is a current uh, analytic writer who has documented historically many of the religious and Judeo-Christian uh, influences of early psychoanalytic writers. Earl and I met, actually, through... Uh, um, the Society for the Exploration of um, Psychoanalytic Therapies and Theology, which is an organization um, that's sort of based in the East Coast uh, through Marie and Lowell Hoffman, who are graduates of the NYU postdoc program. Um, and we've developed together a society and now even, I think, the first overtly Christian psychoanalytic institute um, uh, that, again, is based uh, in the Pennsylvania area uh, of just like-minded people, people who had... Um, some of them who had Christian faith, um, some of them who were who were uh, of kind of uh, related faith traditions, but really uh, or spirituality, but really wanted to think about um, what do these two have to do together? Because as Earl said, there's such a deep sense of meaning, um, you know, even in some sense ontology. Who are we as people? Um, what what is our purpose here in the world? Um, so, and those things um, sort of begin to come together. And as I mentioned, I think that. Um, what I found in the integration literature, which is the term we kind of use in my sphere of influence uh, of relating psycho psychology and theology, is that uh, much of that work uh, was very, very general uh, or monolithic. Uh, there was the interest to try to create models um, where, you know, this is how you put psychology and theology in a conversation with one another. And again, it was treating psychology as sort of one thing, and it was treating theology as one thing. And as we know, there's just so many different variations and colors uh, on both ends of that spectrum that we really need to ask the question, well, are we talking about clinical psychology? And now in clinical psychology, what kind of clinical psychology are we talking about? And are we talking about theology? And if we're talking about theology, what, what branch of theology? And are we talking about theology at the level of, abstract propositional beliefs? Are we talking about it at the level of practical theology, what one does in one's life to grow in faith and, and character? Um, and so, again, I think uh, a big impetus was to try to, as much as possible, kind of keep narrowing this conversation down to where we could kind of take small bites of it 
in, in, in hopes to be more clear, but also in hopes to invite more people into the conversation in whatever particular way they wanted to be part of it. Right. Yeah. I think at one point in um, the first chapter, you describe um, or you just kind of assert this this fact that is so obvious. And then yet when you draw it out, it seems like something I've never really thought about before. That psychoanalysis is a moral discourse. And I think you referenced Philip Reef um, mm-hmm. when when you um, when you when you make that statement. So what I'm gathering from what you're saying is that in in a clinical setting where both um, the analyst and the analysand, if you want to define the relationship like that, are coming into the the equation with um, really important theological or moralistic um, beliefs or worldviews, you can't ignore that. And yet, if you want to pay attention to it, you need to do it with like rigorous specificity. Right, right, exactly true. And I think, you know, Philip Cushman is another person we reference. Um, the, even our very theories, uh, even our psychoanalytic theories have implicit with them these sort of ethical commitments and obligations. And so we're asking um, psychoanalysts who aren't even of a religious ilk to, to ask the question, what is the, what is the underlying implicit ethic of, of, my, uh, of my theory? And I think, I think, Brad, don't you think that that's a conversation that very often um, has been fairly robust within faith circles? So um, certainly within the discussion in Christian psychology circles, I can, I'm in an integrated program like Brad. And so there, there's a lot of discussion of the sort of influence of values on um, one's clinical work. And I think, I think part of the, Part of the discussion that we had noticed in the literature was is that there was a book written about 10 years ago by Randy Sorensen uh, called Minding Spirituality, in which he was speaking towards the psychoanalytic community and saying, hey, listen, we need, probably need to pay attention to people's faith and religion as we're doing psychoanalysis. I think Brad mentioned um, mutual, uh, Toward Mutual Recognition by Marie Hoffman, which was another sort of step in that direction. And so... Part of what we were trying to do with this book as well was to sort of turn the face towards our own community, evangelical community, and say, there are some things that are happening in psychoanalysis that are really um, uh, in concert with some of the things that we really believe in, such as depth understanding of human persons and the, the processes of psychoanalysis um, in terms of understanding the depth of human persons and the value conversation. Um, are really um, congruent with how we understand the world and how we want to do clinical work, and certainly how to, uh, it, it allows us to be much more explicit about um, who we are as persons in the clinical and uh, intersubjective realm of psychoanalysis. Brad, you had mentioned a, a, a moment ago that in your experience there were these sort of, um, I forget the word that you, the specific word that you used, there were these sort of like, models or something for how to discuss these two things together. Did you, um, did you experience that as well? Yeah, I think, I think part of the history of this conversation has been going on, I think now for about explicitly, Brad, probably about 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, since like, clinical psychology really took off is, is that people um, from Christian faith and from other traditions as well, there is um, certainly uh, explorations of this in Jewish psychology and uh, Islamic psychology, but I think Christianity 
um, from an evangelical realm is sort of trying to bring those together. And there's a whole intellectual reason for the, the disjuncture. But um, first of all, the, co- the conversation started out, can these two worlds talk to one another? And that took about uh, 15 to 20 years to figure out that, yes, uh, psychology and Christianity can talk and dialogue. And then there's a couple models that came out of that. Um, uh, one was much more integrative in attempting to to feed into a mutual dialogue about Christianity and faith. Other models were much more um, a separate, uh, sort of seeing um, faith on one level and then seeing psychology on another level and sort of having two separate kinds of discourses. Since that time, there has been uh, other models developed. Um, some are have faith as more ascendant in its in its determination of what's uh, how you lead in the clinical encounter, and others are much uh, much more attempt to bring together both the both worlds of knowledge, both the uh, world of say psychology or psychoanalysis and faith. And so, what we're trying to do here, and I think the I think the thing that I think Brad is right. What we're trying to do is to come from a very experienced near encounter um, in the clinical work. So what really matters in the interaction between the patient and the therapist and, and part of what we're getting at is that you cannot get away from a value saturated uh, conversation. And it's not explicit. Like uh, I believe this or you believe that, but certainly when we're talking about the directions of people's lives or meanings in people's lives, then we're talking about values and we're talking about sort of a moral, moral discourse, which then highlights the importance of understanding where people come from. And I think that's back to Brad's point about being able to tradition ourselves and you can't reduce uh, that to just sort of a sort of side thing. Well, I'm Christian or I'm Presbyterian or I'm Catholic or what have you, that that actually has significant uh, effect on how we understand the clinical enterprise, how we understand ourselves how we understand models of health, uh, even models of communication. Absolutely. Um, so in continuing on um, this same path, I thought that it might be helpful to address some of the arguments that you make in order to, to introduce, um, in order to introduce this conversation, um, which really is throughout the book. I mean, you, try to select a pretty um, diverse group of theoretical backgrounds. Um, All of them do have a relational basis, as you said, and I I think that was your goal to kind of um, point to what it is that that offers um, in in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But in the first chapter, you dig pretty deep um, in discussing why this is, why this is relevant in particular introduce this concept of emergence um, as well as systemic causation mm-hmm. too much to ask you guys to discuss that a little bit um, and kind of introduce the audience to, to that um, argument within the book. Yeah. So, <laughs> so part of, part of the way that we, let me just give some background in, in sort of what, what the first chapter is attempting to do is if we're going to have a discussion between faith and psychoanalysis in the clinical encounter, then we have to have some way of understanding the way knowledge works and the way, um, the way interactions work. And so the terms that we use, such as, um, let's say from a, from a psychoanalytic perspective, such as ego or self or, um, object, those kind of object representation and so on and so forth. 
those have specific meaning within a community. When we go to the faith uh, side, things such as um, um, God or transcendence or prayer or um, uh, the way that we might understand um, uh, sort of uh, God to work in one's uh, experience, that also has to make sense. And so we think, uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure that most of the audience that would listen to this is, is familiar with uh, um, uh, nonlinear dynamic systems and the way in which um, both within development and with the ongoing maintenance of our relational experience is that there are uh, mutually influencing factors, uh, both from a de- uh, developmental uh uh, place and also from the context in which that development occurs um, that are always at play within the interaction and in the clinical situation. So we tried to pull out of some of the that kind of a sort of um, intersubjective non-linear uh, dynamic systems perspective clinically, um, but as well as taking a look at how do we think about um, how do we think about the possibility of something emerging out of the clinical encounter that wasn't there before. And so um, essentially emergence is, is a is more of a, comes out of science and uh, is an attempt to uh, explain causation. Um, and how do you, how do you have a um, non-material kinds of things that come out of material processes? So um, if we think about the concept of a self, we can think about that as being the result of uh, this, uh, uh, sort of different uh, aspects of brain functioning that emerge together that have, allow us to experience the notion of self. So, um, and when that occurs, um, it's sort of, uh, we experience ourselves as whole and an I, an ongoing sense of I. Um, and so we think about the clinical encounter as also having those kinds of emergent properties. Now, I will have, uh, in terms of its outcome, so uh, things will emerge out of the clinical process that, that we didn't plan on and that weren't there before. Now, one of the things we do play with in the, in the, um, in the first chapter is the notion of emergence within theology. And I'm going to just pause this for those who aren't familiar with, with that concept within theology. It's, it's, it's more controversial. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to make a little bit of a, um, what do you, what do you say, uh, sort of a suggestion that maybe one of the ways that we can think about faith and to think about, um, the way that it moves in psychology is, is that, uh, is that God is present within the very processes of the psychotherapeutic enterprise. So if you conceptualize God as a relational being and then you conceptualize psychotherapy or psychoanalysis as a relational encounter, then one of the things that you're looking for I think, and from my perspective, certainly can count on, is what we call an eminental presence of God um, in that relational exchange. Um, and those of us uh, uh, who sort of think that way really look for um, how the relational experience um, can highlight experiences of the divine. So I, I think that um, when I am in a psychoanalytic encounter, it's not just thinking about it as to human subjects, but also thinking about it as a uh, relational encounter that echoes um, the sort of uh, God's design for how he works in the world, which is through relationship. Um, 
let me let me stop there, and Brad. I don't know if you want to fill in uh, some of the stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I think you you said it really well. I think I probably would just um, um, summarize in my own words. I think that emergence is a way to talk about the reality of a material world in a non-reductive way, mm-hmm. so that um, too often religion has been seen as something that is outside of human experience. And so therefore it has a kind of defensive understanding, you know, beginning with Freud. And so um, to talk about human persons and experience and life as being material and physical um, is, is sometimes been difficult for religious people. But I think emergence allows us to talk about life that way and yet also recognize Again, as Earl said, through this complex non-linear dynamic systems, that from the complexity of the brain or what it means to be a body or bodies embedded within complex communities, all the way from ant colonies to cities, that that things emerge from that. Things such as mind um, in the analytic literature. Sometimes when people write about the third, mm-hmm. we can talk about it as something emerges from the unique intersubjective experience of two people. Um, and I think partly what we want to say, too, is that spirituality um, emerges uh, from material as well. But none of these things can be completely reduced to a kind of physicalist-only um, approach, because it's not that simple. You can't locate the mind or third or spirituality in atoms and molecules. It's, it comes about through this really complex, exciting, ever-changing, uncontrollable, chaos kind of theory experience. That, that it is to be human beings in the world. So um, it's non-reductive, but again, it is material. So Earl's comment about this kind of imminental cosmology that perhaps God is at work in the very nature of, of, of human beings and in creation um, is it's kind of a both end. And I think that's why, you know, personally, that's why I'm attracted to more of the relational theories in psychoanalysis because they redi- resist reductionism and they resist an either-or kind of approach, but it's always kind of a both end. And, and that's where I see uh, emergence being really helpful to us. Absolutely. As I was reading the book, I was, also, I was also thinking about how it would be processed by somebody who doesn't have um, a religious background or even a specifically Christian background. And I found that this idea... Um, which you express on page 20 of the introduction, you write, as soon as we attempt to explain human functioning in psychoanalytic or theological frames, we move toward abstract complex categories that may not link directly to physical or material substance, which is what you're saying now. The ante goes up further when we attempt to develop a meaningful conversation between these two forms of dialogue. Um, Distinct theological and psychoanalytic explanations of human behavior and functioning can share constructive explanatory space. That concept, which you guys have explained even more clearly than was in the book for for me, you've explained sort of why it makes sense for these two things to exist in the same conversation, to be thought about in in the same place, um, in a way that has very little to do with with one's personal belief on, on a sort of conceptual level, it makes sense when you introduce that idea? I think that's fair, Claire. I mean, I, I think that, I think clearly um, we're coming at it from a, a Christian perspective, but um, I, I think that we're looking for a model um, to try to explain how that occurs. I, 
I certainly would think um, that a person from a you know alternative faith perspective or or even uh, sort of more of a general spiritual spiritual sensitivity may be able to think about it in those terms. What is um, what is going on in the complex nature of a a discussion in which two um, very dynamic um, people uh, who emerge out of their own context and so on and so forth have a conversation. Uh, so yeah, I think I think you're fair, that's a fair comment. How would you frame this work for individuals who don't have a Christian background or who don't um, who don't even have a religious leaning? How would you frame this for for them in their clinical work? It's a great question. I think for me, um, you know, uh, again, a couple of things we've touched on before. I think the first is a call for for clinicians to recognize or at least grapple with the idea that implicit within their theory of, of clinical psychoanalysis it are kind of these implicit embedded ethical systems. Um, within our theories are statements about how one ought to live or what the good life looks like. Um, even if we say that um, human health is to be in loving relationships with one another, that still begs the question, um, what do those loving relationships look like? Um, loving relationships to what end? Um, I think for too long, psychology in general and psychoanalysis uh, specifically has attempted to, you know, have this kind of value-neutral stance. Now, thankfully, many um, psychoanalytic writers well before us have, have challenged that. And so I think we've moved away from that in a lot of ways. But I still think that the, the average kind of clinician in the trenches often thinks of him or herself as value neutral, as they're not imposing, as they're not even having this moral dialogue. And so I think the first usefulness, hopefully, of the book would be for someone who's not religious to at least begin to think about that. Secondly, I'd say is to recognize, as Randy Sorensen said in, in his book, Minding Spirituality, that Earl referenced, you know, many of our patients are coming to us from religious traditions. And those religious traditions function like culture in their lives. And they give people a sense of purpose and meaning and direction and a, and a goal or a telos for their life. And so um, our goal is not to unthinkingly analyze those away as some sort of defense mechanism against something else, but to recognize the importance of those issues while also recognizing that they can be, in fact, analyzed and explored in terms of the meaning they make, uh, the ways that, yes, at times they can be used defensively, but also at times the way in which they're used in healthy and adaptive ways. Um, and so I hope for someone who's not religious, I think it could be kind of a, you know, sort of like reading a book on cross-cultural psychology, honestly, um, that would help sen sensitize the clinician to not only his or her own kind of implicit values that they're bringing into the room, but also begin to help them think about how do then I have a conversation with the person with whom spirituality or faith is very important to their sense of identity. Yeah. I want to, I want to echo that because I think that that's a really important part of, of the discussion. I actually think that hopefully that this goes into a whole bunch of literature that is emerging in psychoanalysis right now about the importance of understanding um, 
uh, issues of spirituality, faith background, values, moral discourse, all of that. Um, and I, I think uh, I'll re- reference back um, to Marie Hoffman again. I think she's actually done some pretty good work in sort of detailing the implicit religious narratives in many, many, many psychoanalytic writers. Um, and so that those underlying kinds of things, um, uh, it, religious narratives really didn't get to see the light of day in the predominant scientism in out of which uh, psychoanalysis emerged. So if the, if the, if this, the whole conversation out of, uh, um, sort of ethos, um, in which, um, your particular discipline emerges does not allow for a discussion of things like faith, then those things automatically go into sort of a, a background kind of place. And what Brad and I are arguing is, is that, that that's true and that's historical. However, um, those things are always operative. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, even if we're not talking about faith issues uh, explicitly, we believe that both the analyst and the patient have some kind of relationship with that, either internally or um, sort of that gets practiced off to the side. Um, and it's just not talked about. And I would, I would argue that even for those that don't consider themselves to be a faith tradition at all, there's still a there's still an understanding for, or a uh, sort of implicit kind of knowledge uh, that might go around issues of ultimacy um, in which um, deep um, uh, sort of meaning questions related to life uh, get answered. And those might not use the language of faith, but they have, they have the context of what faith issues are attempting to address. And so we're trying to make the argument um, that let's pay attention to this. And again, this is not the first time this argument has been made. I think we try to make it a little bit more explicit. Um, and I think that um, certainly chapter two, um, Brad and his co-authors with that really argue that you have to understand your own background, um, just like you would analyze your own personal history and understand kind of the impact of your development. Um, part of that analysis of your, of what you're bringing to the room is your faith tradition. Yeah. In that, in that chapter, you introduced that, um, Brad, that idea as, um, making a confession, which mm-hmm. I thought was just, aside from it being fun, it also, uh, it again made it um, really obvious what the confluence between um, these two system, systems of, of meaning of meaning is. You've been mentioning the um, interpretation that you guys make of Freud's view on religion. Would you be able to discuss that a little bit? Uh, I'll start out, Brian. You can certainly echo. I, I think that the Freud... I think it's fairly um, evident at this point um, that Freud's relationship to religion was ambivalent. Um, there's an important book that came out by, I believe it's Daniel Mercur, um, called Relating to God. Um, and it actually came out um, in 2014 as well. Uh, but in that book, he really uh, he goes into detail about Freud's, he spends a whole um, 300 pages talking about Freud's uh, sort of back and forth with religion. I think that what we're trying to do here, and this is not the first time this argument has been made, is that um, there is a, an, you can read psychoanalysis as being hostile towards religion. Um, and certainly there were aspects of, of religion at that time that Freud felt were defensive um, and largely were um, uh, sort of influential of, of pathological outcomes. 
But I think it's also uh, important for us to recognize um, that he also played with it in different kinds of ways and that he had a sensitivity to issues related to spirituality. And that's a complex um, thing that I think Mercur brings out. But we find, and I think um, even Freud himself says, is that psychoanalysis is not um, anti-religion in its very foundation. It is uh, sort of a... um, a method that to help us understand possibly the way in which religion uh, plays a role in individuals' lives. That's a whole really, I think, complex, very huge argument conversation, but I think we're trying to get get at the point where um, if your history has said to you that Freud didn't like religion, and so therefore religious people aren't going to like Freud, we want to, we want to sort of open up that conversation to a much different level. level. Well, I think one of, one of the points that is made in, in the book is that um, the, the moment the concept of a Trinitarian God focuses on relationships. The idea of religion that Freud was speaking about or addressing um, as having a kind of paternalistic structure, it, it reaches a limit. So I was wondering if you'd be able to sort of frame the shift in psychology after Freud, um, which sort of parallels um, this shift in theology, which makes this conversation easier to have at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's James Jones's uh, comment, and I, I think it's an important one, is that if, if we look at Freud's uh, building a dynamic off of a sort of a, an exalted father figure, if that's the way that you think about Freud in religion, um, well, that makes sense maybe within more of a classical model. However, if, if we think about um, spirituality or faith in relational terms, and we also have had a relational tilt within psychoanalysis, then that's how we're talking about faith and the development of faith within a person's life and the way in which we can think about uh, the the meaning of faith within a person, uh, within the uh, clinical encounter. So so rather than talking about um, uh, faith as defensive, right, then we can talk about um, or faith as as having super ego functions and and uh, the attempts to um, uh, uh, sort of manage certain imp- impulses and so on and so forth. Um, if we're looking at it from more of a, uh, a relational experience um, and we're thinking uh, possibly uh, the addition of a deficit model to this, then in what ways um, does relationship function within the individual's life and then the whole notion of relationality uh, within spirituality as so God functioning within relationship ongoing wise, um, I think it's more cachet. I don't think what we're saying is that Freud got everything wrong. Um, we, we have great respect for Freud and, and he got some things right, <laughs> but as, as already mentioned, he has a very, what Neville Semington calls a very primitive understanding of religion. And so it is this relational turn in theology where we recognize a God who's both transcendent and imminent, who desires to have an ongoing relationship with God's creation. And in fact, in some ways and in some circles, we can talk about how God's creation, in fact, impacts God um, and moves and changes God in such a way that we, as we talk about in the first chapter, God and God's creation are in this kind of uh, inextricable entanglement with one another, uh, mutually influencing um, one another. So. A lot of the conflict has been around the sort of presuppositions that each of the disciplines have made about one another, 
um, which of course becomes problematic. And, and then a lot of the integration conversation in the past has not been conversation. It's not been dialogue. It's really been about debate. The question ultimately is, well, who wins at the end of the day? <laughs> and I think the relational turn, which again, with its understandings embedded in constructivism and, and, and narrative, um, theology and narrative psychology, the whole, uh, powerful philosophical movement of hermeneutics and phenomenology, all of this provides an opportunity for the two disciplines to be actually in a conversation uh, where the goal is not who wins, that's a debate, right? But a conversation in which both disciplines, and those disciplines are often um, epitomized by, you know, two different theorists or two different theories, or in the clinical room, two different people, when we're in a true conversation, as Gadamer says, then we are at risk to be changed. Um, and I think, again, at a deeper, a deeper sort of analytic or psychological level, one of the things that makes this difficult is that we're at risk of being changed. And, and that actually becomes quite uncomfortable for some of us. And so the very integrative dialogue at times breaks down, I think, not because they're intellectually incompatible, but because at some deeper level, it makes us quite frightened. Right. So in, in, in the book, we have, um, we have thinkers speaking on um, attachment theory, um, relational psychoanalysis, um, intersubjective systems theory, object relations, um, and so on. What struck me about all of, these, um, all of these different schools of thought is that the way that they were conceptualizing the relationship between um, parent and child, in particular in the case of attachment theory, I think this was, was the most obvious. It's also obvious in um, object relations theory, which obviously are closely related. The, the way that that relationship between um, parent and child and then later uh, between spouses in a marital relationship functions very similarly to this way that you're conceptualizing a relational God. First of all, am I reading this correctly? Um, and second of all, was it intentional to bring together a group of people um, who at least were speaking from traditions that could illuminate aspects of that relationship? Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think the first, one of the first things we wanted to, to try to do is to, it, as, as Earl said, in one way, our audience um, are people of faith who are dabbling in psychoanalysis or interested in it but maybe have been frightened away because they told, they were told, you know, in their introductory textbooks that it's dead. Um, we know obviously that psychoanalysis is not dead. Um, but we wanted to clarify that in, in part by suggesting that even within psychoanalysis, there are a number of different schools, right? And there's other schools that uh, we could have had other chapters from other schools as well. So we wanted to clarify that. Um, as we mentioned before, we wanted to give each author the opportunity to demonstrate their theory in conversation with their own particular religious tradition um, and apply that to a case. There's a case that runs through each one of the chapters, the same case to kind of help the reader compare and contrast. Um, I don't, I don't know that we went in trying to make the point that maybe Earl, you'll, you'll say something, something different, but I don't think we went in trying to make the point that our human relationships simply mimic, the relationship with the divine or vice versa. I think we see some of that. And obviously there's some literature, even empirical literature in the attachment world that, that demonstrates some of that. I think we also want to recognize 
you know, we recognize and begin with that God is a being, um, uh, and that this being, therefore, is not limited, again, not reduced to psychology. So one of the things I think we would both, we wouldn't be comfortable with is reducing the human to the divine relationship. We would not want to reduce that to some sort of object relation, relational history. We want to hold open that um, God is a being who can interact uh, in the ways in which God wants to that are consistent with God's very nature. Um, obviously, so God's not going to act in a way that's outside of God's nature. But um, but what we do see is a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities, and a lot of sort of you know we can talk about it as transference or projection or or internal working models. And in fact, early object relational history does have a bearing on an impact with how one interacts with the divine. And yet, there's plenty of stories, you know, uh, case studies in the literature. And even I think in some of the, the empirical work that suggests that people with, you know, very disturbed attachment styles um, somehow can find a way to have a, a quite positive relationship with God. There may be intervening relational experiences that we can't necessarily measure or know about. Um, or, in fact, it may be, again, that a God who can interact in the way in which God wants to um, can have a direct relationship with human beings. So, I'm not quite sure if that's getting at your question, Claire, but I did want to clarify, I think, that we don't want to reduce uh, human-divine relationship to simply human-to-human relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it does. I think what I, what I meant by that is that when you, when you have an object relations theorist talking about object relations in the same context of a conversation about um, one's personal relationship to God, you can kind of see how the I'm not saying that the, the dynamics are identical, that the dynamics are mirroring one another, but there is a way in which the language the language isn't foreign. Maybe you can challenge challenge that reading, um, but that it's possible to understand a client or analysis relationship to their God in similar terms um, in in a treatment setting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Very much so. I think that's very true. And I think um, some authors have also written about the reverse of that, of analyzing one's relationship with God as a kind of template for in the other direction. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think you're you're wrong in saying that at all. I'm sorry, you're like cut you off. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm echoing that. I, I think that partially what you also may find, um, Claire, in reading the book is that, uh, the authors have, have sort of sunk themselves into the theory. And so there really is an intimate dialogue between the theory and one's understanding of faith. And, and again, I, um, not to reify concepts, but I, I do think that maybe to the degree that, uh, that we are drawn to certain types of theoretical explanations, um, that those are in conversation with our own faith background and the degree and the way in which we understand our relationship with God. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a co-construction going on there. And I think we were trying to find theorists who were uh, deeply committed to their faith and then help them to uh, understand psychoanalytic theory in a conversation with that faith. Yeah. I noticed through, just through reading each of the chapters, one of the, one I did find some, um, I guess, theoretical or clinical confluence, one of the one of the things that I want to address is the idea that um, there's like a redemptive quality to um, psychoanalytic psychotherapies. 
Um, that was one thread that I that I found throughout. But just in in reading it, the author seemed to feel so refreshed by the invitation um, to discuss this. And I think Teresa Tisdale, I believe, um, devotes a significant amount of time to kind of making that statement. And I think the result is is immense clarity. I, you know, all, all of these disciplines are very jargon heavy, um, but there was immense clarity in just reading um, in, in reading the perspective. Am I getting somewhere around the mark and saying that there is um, an agreement among many of the authors, maybe yourselves as well, that there is a redemptive quality to the treatment settings. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think we say in chapter one um, that, you know, from sort of in theological language, we could understand the very practice of psychoanalysis um, as a kind of uh, sanctifying methodology. Uh, meaning that um, it's redemptive, it's um, and it's also again in the theological language, it's it's working on the very character of a person, and for a person of faith, Christian faith, that character uh, might be towards likeness of Christ, for example, um, that one could love more and love differently, love one's enemies, care for the poor. Uh, care for the widows and the orphans, those sorts of, again, those, what I described as sort of, you know, issues of ultimacy. Um, you know, what, why am I really here? What am I really up to? Um, obviously some psychotherapies, um, even psychoanalysis begins with, you know, I, I've got this problem. I have this symptoms, if, if you will, but psychoanalysis is, I think, always understood um, those symptoms as representative of kind of larger questions of meaning and ultimacy. Um, and so again, when that happens, you're, you're, you're into this very deep, deep waters of, of ethics and meaning and theology and purpose. Um, and so as we're working with someone psychoanalytically, um, yeah, there's something quite redemptive. There's like a new birth. There's like a, um, and people will say this, even non-religious people. I feel like I, I grew up in analysis. I feel like I became a person. I feel like I became human. There's all these kinds of wonderful metaphors of, of rejuvenation and rebirth and, and redemption. Right. So, so speaking to that point, to what extent can this insight be applied to situations where, um, you know, in your case, you have a, uh, a Christian background and, and this is the way that you're, you're framing your understanding. Perhaps your client does not. Um, how do you, how do you kind of like modulate that and accommodate for that when, when does this become invoked? Under what circumstances um, does it need to be pulled back from? Or is it possible to apply it in a way that's not um, imposing, I guess? Cool. Yeah, I think, I think Claire, that one of the important things we're trying to do in the book is to, is to answer sort of this question. I think that many Christians bring to the field uh, when they come into psychology and when and many non-Christians or non, non, people of non-faith is that um, do we have to be explicit in the in the use of language or explicit in our use of, of concepts if we're going to have uh, redemptive processes or Christian processes or moral conversations? And I think that what we're trying to argue is is that well, yeah, sure, but not not necessarily. Um, and that I think the Christian understanding of redemption, the notion of turning, um, uh, being different, um, and uh, finding new life, I think that those are uh, concepts that um, 
and do not need explicit language uh, to attach to them. So I, I think Brad is right. Um, certainly, the faith can enter into the conversation and analysis in any number any number of ways. Um, but I think what we're trying to say is, is that even if it doesn't, and even if the the clinician and the analyst and the analysand are of different traditions, um, that there can be a deeply redemptive process in the relational exchange, in the relational connection, that echoes very clearly with the Christian ethic. Um, and not just Christian ethics, but other, other faith ethics as well. Um, and that's that that can be truly transformative. Um, and so I, I think, Brad, if I'm, you may want to jump in and, and clarify a little bit, but I think that's that really is part of the the thing that we want to echo deep in this book um, is that that um, relationship has uh, meaning, um, whether you use explicit language or whether the people come from the same tradition or not. Is that correct, Brad? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's not a call for a kind of Christian psychoanalysis. In other words, uh, an imposition. Um, you know, we, we try to stay away from this is how one ought to practice it. It's, it's Again, it's not model-based. It's much more procedural, I would say. Um, but I think the other thing that we do recognize, again, and, and this work, again, is not coming out of religious circles, but it's coming out of, you know, psychoanalysis itself with the you know, the work of people like Erwin Hoffman and, and um, Owen Rennick and Lou Aaron, um, the analyst irreducible subjectivity has to be dealt with um, and it has to be used therapeutically. And so partly what we're saying is um, one's, one's tradition, one's faith tradition or spiritual commitments or even ethical commitments are a kind of tradition. Um, these are part of the analyst irreducible subjectivity. And so, we're interested in the relational turn in psychoanalysis because um, there's wonderful literature now on how and when should we use that subjectivity, um, whether it's about sexuality or about the use of money or about faith. Um, so I, I'm totally in agreement with Earl that there's something redemptive about this work, whether faith is ever explicitly talked about. But I think there's also the next phase of this is, the question that we get a lot is, okay, well, when and how do we talk about it? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that is sort of, a, again, another relational answer, which is, well, it depends. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. That's funny. Um, so how does this, and this will be my last question before, before we close out, but how, how would you situate um, this book and, and the, the, the questions that it deals with and tries to reconcile within the context of um, the professional um, organization that you guys are a part of and what you're trying to do there? Are you talking about our, our broad analytic professional or our schools or, or, uh, yeah, your, uh, your schools. Yeah. Well, yeah. So both of us, um, um I'm at, uh, Rosemary School of Psychology at Bio University, um, and, uh, Brad's at Fuller Theological Seminary. And so, um, here, I know at least at Rosemary here, we have a long tradition of, of analytic theory being, um, sort of holding an important place in, in orienting how we approach clinical training. So, um, for me in my professional work, this, this is a, um, certainly fits right in with uh, the direction of, of the program in general. Um, so I, I see it, I see it as, as very, um, again, 
uh, congruent with how I work um, and and the training that I do. Right. Yeah, and I, obviously very true for myself as well. If I could just expand the question a little bit, I mean, I would love to, to say that, you know, Earl and I are following, again, a tradition of many great analytic writers who have had interest in faith, including Meisner and Rizzuto, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, again, currently, um, more currently, Marie Hoffman, um, and a number of, um, you know, Lou Aaron, uh, looking at Judaism uh, in various ways. Um, so I feel like, you know, it, it's it's in this conversation of the larger integration of faith and psychology, but I hope that it's a natural continuation of a conversation in psychoanalysis and uh, and religious tradition as well. And do you see that conversation as expanding um, more more broadly into other aspects of the psychoanalytic community, or um, is that like a, a a place that this hasn't um, evolved to yet? I guess. For no, I think it's expanding. I mean, the the organization I mentioned earlier, um, the Society for the Exploration of Psychoanalytic uh, Therapies and Theology. Uh, is, um, you know, has a listserv of, I don't know what it is now, or close to 500 or something. 300, oh, 500. 500. Yeah. Um, and many of these people would be sort of, um, you know, kind of religiously interested <laughs> or religiously curious opposed to, you know, I'm of this faith tradition. So I think that's happening. I think we're seeing more books, even in the analytic literature, uh, being published that, that have to do with faith in some way. There's a lot of work in Buddhism you know, in the last 10 years in psychoanalysis, um, Catholicism in psychoanalysis. So I think that, um, I think, I think it really is a movement. One of our close friends, Paula Ham, also runs a study group, um, through the American Psychoanalytic Association that meets every year, which is on spirituality and psychoanalysis. So these dialogues have been going on for some time. I just think maybe because of some of the prejudice and some of the historical baggage, they don't get quite the press that, that other things do. Well, thank you so much for um, involving me in the conversation. I've, I've learned a lot, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you, with you both. Thanks, Sawyer. Thank you, Blair.